0: Hello and welcome to the lebanese politics podcast my name is nizar hassan i'm joined as usual by benjamin red and this week we have a very special guest Rida Frangi from the legal agenda hello Ghida. welcome to the show
1: hello how are you
0: i'm good how are you
1: good thanks for having me
0: tell us a little bit about yourself please
1: well i'm a lawyer i'm also a researcher and i'm the president of legal agenda it's an ngo that works on judicial policies and legal policies in lebanon and the arab world we have an office in tunis as well so we cover the whole uh, arab region Um, I mostly specialize in criminal justice, so I do a lot of litigation and as well a lot of research on how the criminal justice system works in Lebanon.
2: And we are super excited to have you on the show. Uh, We've got so much to talk about this week, and I I feel like I'm about to learn a whole lot about the criminal justice system in Lebanon. But before we get to that, we had a lot of news that happened this week. Uh, So I mean, starting out with the UK banned Hezbollah in its entirety, right? Indeed, so
0: the UK government on Friday decided to ban Hezbollah's political wing, uh, the political party of Hezbollah, uh, in addition to uh, having banned already its military wing and its uh, external security organization. Uh, The initiative was by Home Secretary uh, Sajid Javid, and his justification uh, for this new decision is that Hezbollah is continuing its attempts to destabilize the fragile situation in the Middle East not a very specific or um, circumstances-based action. It seems more of a political move. But anyway, calling for support to Hezbollah or being a member of Hezbollah is now a criminal offense in the UK. Uh, You can be punished with up to 10 years in jail and obviously uh, we had many reactions to this hezbollah condemned it on friday as well saying the move reveals how the british government is only a follower in the service of its american master basically the uk government following the u.s instructions because very recently the u.s has warned against hezbollah's rising influence in the lebanese government after the recent elections and there are many questions concerning the timing of this decision apart from uh, the american call why would the uk take make this decision today And the Labour Party, the official opposition in the UK, did not stop this decision, but they said it's more about uh, the Home Secretary's ambitions rather than uh, any new evidence being provided because the House of Commons had already had this case in front of them and they didn't make a decision about it because there was not enough evidence uh, about Hezbollah's political organization. But the fact that Labour did not oppose it and the fact that uh, it came during a time where uh, the Labour Party has been rocked by the recent uh, anti-Semitism row in the UK, especially with eight MPs from the Labour Party resigning, this seems to me more of a, of a trap by, by the Tory government than and, and like a, a decision based on new circumstances or new um, developments.
2: Yeah. So it, it's important to point out as well we, that there are a couple of contradictions here at play. So first off, this whole idea that there are like separate wings of Hezbollah, like there's the political wing and the security wing, uh, that's sort of a fiction that is... That was dreamt up by the Europeans so that they could deal with uh Hezbollah without having to fully embrace, you know, all all of what the party stands for, basically. And and this is something that Hezbollah itself says, you know, like we we are one organization, we are not two, we're one organization. So there so there is that, like the UK is correct, like I guess, on the on the technicalities, and the US is correct on the technicalities of like, yes, this is one organization. On the other side, though, once you, once you flip to the other side of the coin, uh, like there's also contradictions there. And, and that is basically that, well, uh, OK, you can condemn this uh, group as a terrorist organization, but they're also a democratically elected organization. And so if you're going to consider them a terrorist organization, then, well, are, are you sort of like trampling on democracy or, or not? So no matter which side you're on, there is sort of a contradiction. It appears that the UK has decided to go with the latter contradiction.
0: I think how you're describing it is a bit too technical. I mean, uh, the UK is just, you know, using a a certain political moment to to take this this move uh, in line with the US foreign policy, in my opinion. That's basically most of it. And then you have the internal UK politics aspect. But I think what's important to note here is that it's going to have a major impact on British organizations' activities in Lebanon, specifically the fact that a lot of donor agencies and NGOs Who have headquarters in the UK and a lot of British nationals work here in the development sectors and they work with municipalities whose heads are um, affiliated with Hezbollah with organizations and charity organizations that might be affiliated with Hezbollah so this this is going to be a lot of complications for uh, for British nationals here and I've heard some rumors from friends in the sector that they have been holding kind of emergency meetings with with people in the government and in the sector to understand how they're going to be
2: dealing with this new situation. Uh, in other news, we also had a, a big court case that was decided this week. For those of you who have been listening to the podcast, we've mentioned before that there's been this long-standing legal war over who owns LBCI, one of the major TV stations here in Lebanon. Basically, LBC was established back during the civil war uh, by the Lebanese forces. But when the leader of the LF, Zsa Zsa, was about, it, it looked like he was about to go to prison, they signed it over to a man named Pierre Daher, and this guy built LBC into LBCI and basically claimed ownership of it. And once his jaja got out of solitary confinement, of 11 years in solitary confinement, he said, hey, give me back my TV station. And Pierre Dahar said, no, I'm not going to do that. And they've been fighting it out in the courts for more than a decade now. I think the lawsuit started in 2007. And so finally this week, the judge ruled in the case. And she said, no, it is not. Uh, Samir Jaja's station, it is Pierre Dahir's station. And of course, this uh, caused a lot of problems. Samir Jaja immediately said, no, I'm going to appeal. Uh, this was not a right ruling, all of that.
1: Well, technically, the Lebanese forces were suing Pierre Daher and the companies related to LBC for breach of trust. And what the court said was that there was no breach of trust. But in my opinion, it didn't rule for LBC or against the Lebanese forces. It ruled for the Lebanese state. And it's a really historical decision because what it actually said, and this is a 112 pages document. It said that the money that the Lebanese forces used in order to finance LBC was levied out of illegal taxes during the civil war. And that this money belongs to the lebanese people and that therefore it did not belong to the lebanese forces so what the decision did it refused to recognize the legitimacy of anything that happened during the civil war that was illegal at the time so it refused to provide legitimacy to all the illegalities and violations of the civil war which is contrary to really today the mainstream approach of the judiciary whereby if something happened during the Civil War, we'll just let it go and accept it as a legal thing. And that court refused to do that. So that's why I think that it's a really historic decision, and it's somehow um, alleviating all the grievances related to the Civil War.
2: I've I've heard it characterized as this decision means that anything that militias owned during the Civil War was rightfully the property of the state. Is that a correct uh, way of looking at it?
1: Definitely. It did say that all militias... Um, the, the monies that they had levied and uh, everything they owned belonged to the state because we have a law that dissolved all the militias after the war. And so basically she she based the, the judge based herself on that law to say that this money belongs to the state and all these properties belong to the state.
2: And, and to your knowledge, is this the first ruling like this?
1: Yes. And that's why I'm calling it a historic ruling. And to be fair, this is a ruling between this is a fight between two giants. So you don't have a weak party and a strong party. This is a media mm-hmm. giant and a political giant. And here the decision came for the right of the Lebanese
2: people, basically. We, we will, though, be seeing this challenge in higher court.
1: Definitely. And I hope that the court of appeal will follow through on what the judge did rather than just break this trend.
2: Uh, the other really big story that happened this week was this anti-corruption push, which is actually I, th- I think two big things happened this week w- within this new this new push that we're seeing now that we have a, a a new cabinet and everything. One of the things that happened was this state hiring scandal just broke all over the place, and and so basically let's back up and I'll uh, I'll explain what happened here. Back in 2017, MPs voted to give the public sector a raise finally and this was like a watershed thing it had taken like 20 years for them to get to this moment but because it was going to cost so much money there were concerns over the cost so they added in this clause that said oh we're going to put enough hiring freeze as well and that went into effect in august of 2017 but somehow apparently a lot of people got hired anyway and apparently a lot of this hiring happened in the run-up to the 2018 election surprising yeah right and, and so in October, the Finance and Budget Committee of Parliament asked for reports into this, and they recently got two of them. They got one from the Civil Service Board uh, and one from Taftish al Markezi, which is the Central Inspection Bureau. The one from the Taftish that was more numbersy, and it, and it actually broke things down. And it showed that there are probably about 5,000 people that were hired by the state during the hiring freeze. But it also showed something something different, and that is that maybe there are some 15,000 who were illegally hired just in general to begin with because they were hired under classifications either before or after the hiring freeze came into effect. They were hired under classifications that do not exist under Lebanese law. And, And so what started out as one scandal over hiring during a hiring freeze has sort of like trebled in size into this sort of general scandal of just hiring in general and hiring potentially people according to no law whatsoever, but somehow get hired by the state anyway. Just to be clear here, number one, we're not entirely clear on these numbers. They keep changing, first off, because uh, the Taftish keeps on finding out new things and they, they have uh, limited capabilities. They're understaffed. So as they look further into these numbers and as they get more numbers in from different parts of the administrations, uh, the public administrations, then these numbers will continue to change, number one. But number two, like this is the 5,000 and the 15,000, one is not like included in the other or anything. So some of the 5,000 are in the 15,000, but probably some of them are not as well. We don't know yet the full number of this. so this, this is a story that has definitely sort of like ballooned uh, into really huge proportions this week. We will see what happens next week as the investigators and as the committee continues to look into this. Oh, one thing that I almost forgot about this, which is really, really cool. We have never known how many employees are actually employed by the state. How many people are in the civil service? Estimates before now have been like, oh, around 200,000 but as of right now, it seems as though that is an overestimation. And it seems as though the Taftish is starting to get close for the first time, at least since the Civil War, close to a number of actual state employees, which you would think people would know, but apparently they don't. And and it looks like that number may be, you know, somewhere 110,000, 120, 130,000, something like that.
0: Just to give some context here, like- this, this kind of employment that's um, described as illegal or against the government's policy of um, employment freeze is is basically the main one of the main clientelist tools for political um, zaims in Lebanon for political leaders to provide jobs for people without them having to pass through the the civil service uh, council because then it doesn't matter if you're competent if you're qualified for the job as long as you're uh, a contract teacher you don't have to go through the exams that everyone else has to go through so this has been a big issue uh, a big issue raised by teachers mostly but also by the union movement over the last 4 years
2: and also a fun note, all of these uh, public-private partnerships that we keep hearing about, well, if they do happen, then the employees will not have to go through the C- uh, the civil service board as well, which means that Zayim's will have actually a freer hand in hiring. Okay, and, and the other thing in the corruption file that happened this week was Hassan Fadlala, uh, an MP with Hezbollah, gave files to the financial prosecutor, Ali Ibrahim. Thursday that he said detailed billions of dollars that uh, had been lost in state funds. Uh, he didn't point fingers at anybody. He didn't name names, but it was sort of, I guess, heavily implied that he was talking about uh, former prime minister Fuad Sanyora and, and the the billions, supposedly billions of dollars that of state funds that were lost during his tenure. Well, Sanyora was not having it. He had a press conference the next day on Friday, it was a show of force, a bunch of future movement, and March 14th figures were there. Bahia Hariri was there. Butros Harib was there. Uh, like, a, a, a lot of big names came down for this press conference, and Senora basically explained— because there's, there's been this rumor going around for a really long time that, like, un, under his premiership from 2005 to 2009, the state lost, like, $11 billion. That's just unaccounted for. We don't know where the money went. Well, he came down and he explained, well, no, that's not really the case. Uh, And and his case was basically that, uh, yes, we did spend more than what the budget authorized for that year, for for those years, for uh, 2006 to 2009 specifically. However, we had to. We had bills to pay. Uh, During those years, we didn't have a budget. That means we had to go off of the 2005 budget. And costs, you know, they always increase. And so we had to keep paying for EDL costs increase, state employee costs increase, costs increase for the retirees of the state, stuff like that. And we had to cover it. And so instead of it being included in the budget, it was included, you know, through other means, but all of this money, it wasn't just wasted. It didn't just go into my pocket. It went for things that the state needed and everybody was in on it. Like everybody knew about this, this is not a scandal. I don't know if he's actually 100% right on this or wrong on this. I do know that if you look at the numbers from the finance ministry and you add up 2006 to 2009, you sum it all up, and then you subtract the budget for those years, which was basically the 2005 budget times four. Then you get to, it was $11 billion, $11 billion over the budget. However, the budget isn't the only means of spending, Right, of authorizing spending. Yes, it, it is in theory, legally it is, but when things happen in Lebanon, politicians find a way to pay for them, right? And if they can't do that through a budget, they will do it through other means. And so one of the means of doing it is treasury advances, for instance. And, and I know uh, a friend of the show, Jeremy Arbeid, went back and looked at these years and pulled out all of the treasury advance decrees from 2006 to 2009. And if you add them all up, then they 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 account for uh something like five billion of the 11 billion so I, I still don't know where the other six billion is no one knows yeah ex- ex- exactly so I, I, I'm I'm not sure I mean certainly what Senora said had a ring of truth to it because that much money just doesn't go missing without a lot of people knowing about it and a lot of people agreeing where it's gonna go uh but on the other hand well where did this okay we know where like half of the 11 billion dollars went where did the other half go I don't know Okay, so very quickly, uh, also this week, uh, Cabinet Met, they approved Eurobond issues, which uh, is very, very necessary because Lebanon has about $2 billion in in U.S. dollars due between now and the end of May, on top of like $1.5 billion in Lebanese lira. So a lot of debt needs to be rolled over. Um, Also, the Cabinet approved promotions for some teachers, uh, which was controversial. The FPM was against it, but uh, eventually this ended up passing. Also next week, Parliament is set to meet on Wednesday and Thursday. Uh, in addition to a lot of legislation, MPs are uh, set to decide on members of the Supreme Council, which is this special court that uh, is supposed to try ministers and the prime minister and the president under certain circumstances. It, it's made up of like seven MPs and eight judges. It's, it's this bizarre body that, that that's out there.
1: And that has never existed except on paper. Has Re- never worked really? as a court because there is no accountability for our prime ministers and ministers.
2: So so this is actually part of the anti-corruption push there. Let's see. Speaking of bringing justice to people, this is our, this is our main topic. And I, I will confess, I do not know a whole lot about the criminal justice system in this country. So Rita, can you just sort of walk us through, like, how, how is the system supposed to work?
1: Well, let me start by saying that it's not exactly like you see it in the US movies, OK? So the system starts, you have different phases if you want. The first one is the police investigation phase, and this is done by prosecutors. So what's important to know is that prosecutors in Lebanon are judges. They're not lawyers like in the U.S., for example. They are judges, which means that they have been trained in the same institute and at the same time as the other judges who are sitting on the bench to rule on cases. And the same person can at some times be appointed as a prosecutor and a bench judge. So, and another thing is that prosecutors also can't negotiate in Lebanon. They can't negotiate on the public lawsuit. So, you know, there's no plea bargains, for example. Once they find evidence, they charge you and they have to send you up to another judge to try you. So that's phase one, okay? So phase one is the police investigation. It's under the supervision of the prosecutor, and it's usually executed and done by the ISF or the internal security forces, but it can also be done by the general security or the state security, for example. So after the police investigation, in some cases, you might have another judicial investigation, and that's done by an investigation judge. This is done when your uh, crime is very serious, like a felony, or when there's not enough evidence for you in a small crime, where it's not straightforward. If the case is straightforward, it goes directly from a police investigation to a trial. If it requires further investigation, then it's done by this investigation judge.
2: And it's the prosecutor who decides which route this takes? Exactly. That's the decision of the prosecutor.
1: Once the investigation is completed by the investigating judge, then you are referred to trial. So if it's a small crime, you go straight to a single judge who will try you. Or if it's a more complicated crime, more serious crime um, that is punished more harshly, then you'll go in front of a criminal court. Of course, we don't have juries in Lebanon. But you have a criminal court, three judges who will try you.
2: Okay, and from what I understand as well, in the trial, it's also different from what. I understand from growing up watching the practice and shows like that. It, it's not this adversarial defense versus prosecution. Uh.
1: Definitely, it's a very different system because you have two schools in the criminal justice systems. You have one which is considered the adversarial or the accusatory, that's what the US follows, and then you have the more inquisitorial or, or investigation system which Lebanon follows. So the difference is that the court in the US, for example, is, is neutral towards the case. And the court acts as a referee between the prosecution and the defense lawyers. So they bring in whatever evidence they want, and then the judge or the court decides uh, how to rule. In Lebanon, that's not the case. The court has investigation power and inquisitorial power. That's why we call it the inquisition. So the court can actually ask for evidence.
2: Wait, is that the actual term that's used? It's
1: inquisitorial. So it has inquisitorial powers, if you want, but it's not really an inquisition like the Spanish one. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Yeah, just baggage, that word.
1: But the idea is that the court can inquire, so it can ask for evidence, and it can ask you questions. It it questions the defendant, the witness. So it's not like, I mean, as a defense lawyer, I can never cross-examine a witness here in Lebanon. The court asks the questions. All I can do is submit my question to the judge, and the judge will decide whether or not to ask that question. So I can never go, where were you on the night of the murder, and trick a witness into admitting something. That's the court who decides that.
2: But if you see something going wrong in the trial, are you allowed to object?
1: Yes, you can object, of course. Uh, But uh, the decision is always with the judge to ask the question they want, to assess the evidence the way they want.
2: And the prosecutor is still here as well.
1: Okay, so if it's the small court of the small crimes, it's just one judge alone, there's no prosecutor. So it's just you and the judge, okay? But if it's the big crimes, the felony courts, in the criminal court you have three judges, and then you have the prosecutor... And you, but what's interesting here, as opposed to the U.S., is that the prosecutor is not sitting next to you as a defendant. The prosecutor sits next to the judges.
2: And and what is the prosecutor's role in that in that situation?
1: Uh, in principle, they are supposed to decide whether you should be uh, request from the court to uh, to find you guilty, and they can also submit additional evidence. But what is actually happening in practice is much less than that. Most, uh, in most of the cases, they just uh, take some formal uh, positions without really uh, submitting evidence and without taking a very active role in the criminal uh, trials.
2: And, and so once the, the verdict is handed down, though, there is, there is an appeals process, of course.
1: Yes, but it's different depending on which court you're in and depending on the type of crime. So uh, if it's a small crime, as I said, a misdemeanor, then you can appeal uh, to the appeals court. And after that, you can even go to the Supreme Court, a second challenge. If you are tried by the criminal court for a felony, then you can only go to the Supreme Court directly, which is not considered an appeal, but a cassation, which means that it's not automatic.
2: Oh, and and that's why they call it the Court of Cassation. Yes. Okay. Okay. So before we get into all of the issues that come up with this, I I do want to note, like sort of take a little detour and mention this other parallel court system that that you also have to deal with, uh, which is the military courts.
1: Yes. So it's not a military court. It's a whole military justice system. It's a parallel system technically this is supposed to be an exceptional system meaning that the regular courts are the regular place where you should be tried and this is the military courts are just the exceptional place where in specific situations you can be tried there However, over the course of the time, the laws have changed and evolved and the practice as well to extend the jurisdiction of the military uh, justice way beyond what should be done. So now you find a lot of civilians finding themselves up in front of a military judge for any little problem that can happen with a security officer or a military officer or for posting, uh, for example, Facebook posts related to the army or to uh, security personnel. So the jurisdiction of the military courts have been expanded really um, largely in recent years.
2: And and this is due to uh, changes in the law itself or something else?
1: Uh, Recently, it has to do with the practice because the military court is a much more useful political tool than the regular courts, if you want. The possibility of intervention by politicians and by the Ministry of Defense into the military court is more likely than in regular courts. Structurally, I mean, in terms of who the judges are. Most of the judges are military officers. You have very few civilian judges. But um, they are
0: trained to be judges?
1: No, they have practically no legal training or very limited training.
0: And who's the who's the, um, the ultimate authority in this system? Is it like a military, uh, the head of the army or something like that? Or is it normal judges having authority over specific cases?
1: Well, it's, as I said, a full court system. So it has the military police, the military prosecutor, the military judge, and then a military court and even the military case station court. So it has everything if you want. And of course, it's the military prosecutor who decides who to prosecute and how. But the head of the army has the authority to sue anyone in front of the the military uh, courts. That is something that doesn't exist in the regular courts, for example. So they can, the, the, the head of the army can decide that this person should be sued, and they will be sued by the military prosecutor.
0: So why was this court created in the first place?
1: Well, essentially, it is supposed to be the court that defends the military and security establishment if you want so it's here to defend the interests of the army and the security agencies the problem is that it has extended its jurisdiction so largely that it now covers civilian life so as civilians it's our right to be judged by our own peers and this is what we call the principle of the natural judge and we haven't relinquished that right we haven't joined any institution to relinquish that right And that's the real problem. Mm. And that's why we have a lot of concerns on the fairness of the trials that happen at the military court. They are designed for their own personnel. They're not designed for civilians.
0: So civilians shouldn't be tried against the military tribunal?
1: Definitely not. And we've been litigating a lot on this. We've succeeded in some of the cases. But what happens is that in practice, they are sending a lot of civilians to the military courts. And unless you object and say, no, this is not my place to be tried, then nobody will do it.
2: Okay. So putting that to the side, this whole other structure of courts and all of the problems that it brings with us, let's go back to just the civilian side of things, because the way you laid it out sounds like this is, okay, a pretty good system. This should be able to work pretty well. Why doesn't it?
1: Well, we have a lot of structural problems, of course. Um, The first problem, the big problem we have is that our criminal laws are very old. So our criminal code, which decides what is a crime and how we should be punished for it, that goes back to 1943. This is very old. I mean, society has changed so much, and criminal laws need to follow social change.
2: That's literally independence. Exactly. 75 and years ago.
1: Exactly. And it's based on the old French uh, criminal code. So it's it's not up to date anymore. Um, there are a lot of crimes that shouldn't exist. Uh, crimes like adultery, crimes like uh, what they consider sodomy. Article 534, which I believe you've discussed in the previous episode, but also how we should punish certain crimes also needs to be reviewed. And that update of the criminal laws is not happening. Give you an example. Stealing a scooter or a car is now considered a felony up to, uh, punishable by up to 10 years of imprisonment. What? Because in '43 who had cars? That was a very oh. rare commodity. That, and nobody had scooters. But today, everyone has cars and everyone has scooters. So the, the value of that object has changed. And I can't oh punish the theft of it. Similarly, that's a very simple example. Stealing a motorcycle today is a felony.
2: That is absolutely insane.
1: Yes, and that's why we should review all these laws, of course. But we have other structural problems as well, and the main one being the independence of the judiciary, which is not well guaranteed. That's something at Legal Agenda that we've been working on a lot. We've been working for the last four years on how to improve judicial independence, and we've even drafted a law. It's now in front of Parliament, and we're hoping that next year it should be up to the General Assembly and voted on. So what I mean by judicial independence is the most important part of the Constitution, if you want, is it recognizes the separation of powers, meaning that the judicial system should be able to rule fairly and objectively without interference from the other powers. This is not the case today because it's the government that appoints the judges, which means that it opens the door for corruption because when a judge receives a phone call from a politician, they will need to think about their career when they decide whether to respond to that politician or not. And that, of course, puts judges under a lot of pressure. And they have very little guarantees themselves against higher judges and against the politicians. They have no right to free speech. They are being denied the right to form a union and a syndicate. Two weeks ago was something historic happened. The first uh, judges club was established. They were being fought by the whole establishment so that they were denied the right to form that NGO. But Nuhad al-Mashnu, on the last day before he left the Ministry of Interior, signed the registration and uh, document and allowed them to gain uh, uh, full legal
0: status. Okay, I have two questions. What is this club meant to do and why didn't Nuhad mashnu do this?
1: Okay, so the idea of a judges club, uh, is something we've been working on uh, for a very long time, uh, was for judges to be able to unite or to come together to propose solutions, to do studies, to have a, a collective voice, because right now they are just individual judges, each in their own court, mm. and subject to all the pressure of by politicians and by senior judges as well. When they come together, they are stronger. Then they can talk in the name of the club rather than in their individual name, they can uh, come together to do to propose uh, policy uh, reforms. And th- it, what's important for them is also to work on their own independence. But it all came up after the uh, last summer's uh, strike. We had a very long judicial strike. Um, so when last summer, the government uh, wanted to merge the judges' pension fund with the pension fund of all other uh, civil service employees. And this is very important because judges are not considered civil service uh, employees because they are a constitutional authority and they need to be independent. So they can't be treated like any public agent.
2: And, and the Mashnook question, though.
1: So we don't know why Mashnu signed it, but we know why he wasn't able to sign it before and why he only waited until the last day to to sign it. And that's because, as I said, the whole establishment was against the judges club. So you had the Minister of Justice who had refused. You had also the head of the Judicial Council who had refused. Everyone uh, was saying that judges are not allowed to have an association. They don't have the right to uh, join together and do something collectively. And uh, they were putting a lot of pressure on Mashnu not to to sign the NGO documents.
2: Okay, so we have an issue of old laws. We have an issue of like the judicial, like the politicization of of, of the judiciary and uh, the lack of independence. What else?
1: We have very little resources for the criminal justice system. So if you look at the state budget, the Ministry of Justice has 0.38% of that budget. And that's a very low proportion compared to other countries. We also have a big shortage of judges. We estimate it to be around 35%. And if you think about how much money we're paying into the special tribunal for Lebanon on a yearly basis, where it's an average of $30 million, if I'm not mistaken, that's a lot of money. And we don't have one computer in the whole court system. We have absolutely no computer, no digitalization. And that means everything is on paperwork. Everything is on a piece of paper everything takes much more time and we don't have data, we don't have statistics. That's the state of our justice system. And if you think about why we did the special tribunal for Lebanon, it's because we didn't trust our judiciary to be able to try such an important case, such as the assassination of former Prime Minister Hariri. But we haven't done anything in the last 15 years. To improve our judiciary, nothing to guarantee more independence so that they can judge such important cases and nothing to give it the means to be an efficient system.
2: And, and that lack of uh, digitization, it, it also has effects on transparency, right? Because it's harder to be transparent with physical documents than it is if, if everything is digitized, then that can be leaked very easily or that can be, you know, hosted on some website very easily, right?
1: Definitely. I mean, the lack of digitalization in this age makes everything uh, more difficult and definitely less transparent. Most importantly, I think, is the lack of statistics as well. Now, there is a project with the EU now to introduce computers into some of the courts. We don't know to what extent this will be a sustainable project, but this is really a must to introduce computers and digitalization into the justice system.
0: I'm really speechless. I mean, I really, I mean, I'm so shocked. I knew that we're in a, in a shitty situation in our uh, public administration, but this is really bad. Like, I didn't imagine it to be that bad. I mean, they could just invest maybe, I don't know, $1 billion over the next 10 years, and they would fix all of this.
1: Definitely. And I think it's uh, you need a justice system that functions correctly for the regular citizen. I mean, what is the uh, uh, social or legal value or economic value of investing so much money into the trial of three people who murdered a small number of people compared to all the cases that are being tried in all over Lebanon Mm. um, and, and into the murders of regular people, into theft cases and into violence?
2: I'm curious because all of the things that you've mentioned so far could be applied, I think, you know, outside of just criminal justice. They have to deal with like the larger justice system in general, right? But I assume that there are a number of things that are just specific to criminal justice where a lot of problems crop up, whether that is in like detention or whether that is uh, the way that the police work uh, with the prosecutors, things like that. Can, can you talk very quickly about the, the big highlights that, that, that you find important there?
1: Well, I think the first one is the fact that we don't really have a criminal policy that's clear and that's transparent. We don't know what crimes are the priority crimes for our prosecution. We don't know uh, wh- how much resources do we have into investigating serious crimes or less serious crimes. We, d- we don't understand what are our criminal uh, priorities and policies in this country. We have zero research that's being done. And as I said, no statistics. And that's really a huge problem. We also, we we are very bad in detention management, I think. So by law, the Ministry of Justice should be managing the prisons. But in practice, it's the ISF and the Ministry of Interior. And we haven't done that transfer yet in practice, even though it's there in the law. And this is creating a problem because the authority who is deciding to detain someone is not the authority who is physically detaining that person. So a big problem that we have is actually the ISF not bringing detainees up to court and delaying their trial because the ISF doesn't have sufficient cars um, and because the, the judge has no authority over the prison, then prisoners are delayed in being brought before a judge and that affects their whole possibility of getting a fair trial, of getting an early release and of being able to see a judge and not being brought before a judge quickly uh, means that you don't have guarantee for your personal safety when you're in detention. And we have a huge prison overcrowding. We have several prisons and all of them are overcrowded to the extent that we've started to use police stations as prisons. There was a time last year where we had an estimated of more than 2,000 people in police stations waiting to be tried rather than in prisons. This is wow. a big problem.
2: Yeah, that's huge. And and I understand also one of the issues is that if you are part of like a marginalized group, we, we were talking about this just last week when we talked about LGBTQ rights, if you're part of a marginalized group or, or if you're a woman, for instance, then your access to the judiciary and the judicial system and to justice itself is a lot more questionable.
1: Definitely. Your experience with the justice system will be different depending on your socioeconomic profile and on who you are. But what's important to know is that more than 50% of our judges are women. So at the end of 2019, we will reach 51% of our judges being women. And this is very important. We don't have that in any Arab world. And we have a lot of really good women judges who are working. There is a lot of bias in the judiciary, definitely, because judges are people. And they receive no training in the institute about marginalization or vulnerability. They don't receive any training like that. So they are like any random person with all the biases that Lebanese people can have. However, we have a group of judges, of activist, progressive judges who are issuing beautiful decisions and who are interpreting the law in favor of marginalized group, in favor of our private rights. For example, all the judges who have ruled that homosexuality is not a crime. These are very important decisions. Uh, We've recently even had a decision saying that our phones cannot be searched unless there is a clear judicial warrant in case of necessity. Very important decision also for our rights. So there is bias and you find that the more the person is marginalized, like domestic workers, their experience in the judiciary is hell. They will very likely be convicted for theft, even if they uh, say in court that they were beaten, even if they say that they had horrible working conditions, and that they were not receiving their salary. We've even had cases where the amount that the domestic worker was accused of stealing, without evidence, of course, was way less than the amount of salaries she had not yet received from her employer. But this was not taken into consideration. This is bias. This is a form of bias that we're seeing against domestic workers. And when you're in a police station as well, you, you find all the all the bias. You find the likelihood that you would be mistreated in a police station has to do as well with all the phobias that can exist within security forces. Whether it's for people who are not uh, gender normative, or whether it's people from different nationalities, or whether it's people from uh, rural areas or uh, low people with from low income, um, these are the people who are more likely to suffer from abuse and uh, not to be treated fairly later on in front of a judge.
2: And it's it's interesting that you mentioned that because it's it's my understanding, um, you know, from, from talking to various people that if you have enough money, the police station is where everything happens, right? Like the, so the prosecutor is overworked. And so that leaves a lot of things to the security uh, agencies, to the police. And so that means that the police investigator is sort of like the node that if you have a good lawyer, maybe that lawyer can go talk to that police officer and come to some sort of understanding about your case before it gets any further. And if you have means to do that, if you have money, then that puts you at a lot better position. It's true
1: for every uh, criminal system, I think, in the world that if you have resources, then you will definitely get a more fair trial than if you don't have resources. And this applies also to Lebanon. Having resources will influence the police into treating you better, into not being very aggressive into finding evidence against you, but it will also allow you to have a good defense lawyer and well argue your case. So that's for sure. Now, the problem is that the investigation process in Lebanon, whether the police or the judicial investigation, is secret. It means that we as lawyers don't have access to it. And when we don't have access, it means that influential and powerful people do have access. So it's closed for everyone, but it's open to the few elect people who have influence, whether it's political, economic, or any form of influence. So this is where the corruption happens, if you want, at the level of the police station. And this requires a uh, good accountability, I think, from within the ISF and the security uh, agencies, but I think it also requires that prosecutors have a better supervision of what happens at the police station, which is not happening today. Everything that goes on in a police station should be ordered and reviewed and accepted by a prosecutor. And this is not happening because prosecutors are overwhelmed, as you said. They have a lot of cases to work on. So they do everything by phone with the police officers. So it's the police officer and the investigator who can control what they tell the judge, and how they want to lead the investigation. They have a v- big uh, room for maneuver, if you want. And prosecutors are not exercising their supervision sufficiently, in my opinion.
2: Okay, so given all of these you know, multitude of problems, like what are the chances today that somebody actually gets a fair trial or has a chance at a fair trial in Lebanon?
1: There are chances, as I said. One, if you have the resources— But also, I mean, uh, there are a lot of good judges, judges that take their role seriously, that have a lot of respect for defendants and that are actually helping people to be released early or are helping people to defend themselves as well. And I do believe that all these uh, judges um, who are free to rule as they want in their court have a big influence on how the system can be improved. But of course, it can't just rely on individual judges. We need big legal and policy changes we need to review our criminal code we need to adopt that law and to ensure the independence of the judiciary so that we can limit corruption and that we can limit political interference because political interference happens mainly in the criminal system and not in other courts and we also need to give resources to our justice system it's a shame not to be able to have uh, an efficient system uh, that can give us the fair trial that we deserve
0: Well, against all this, um, we hope that all the activism efforts that you're doing, uh, the legal agenda and similar organizations maybe will be fruitful in this sense. And we'll see more reforms in the next few years. Um, And thank you so much for coming on this episode. This has been really informative. And uh, I understood how much I realized how much I knew nothing about the judicial system in Lebanon and this whole mess.
2: Yeah, I feel I feel like normally here on the Lebanese Politics Podcast, we know a lot going into the episode. And this time I feel like I I thought I knew a lot going in and I didn't. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the show, Rida. Uh, really, really appreciate it.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
2: And until next time, I'm Benjamin Redd. I'm Nizar Hassan.
1: And I'm Rida Frenchiji.
2: And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast.
0: politics podcast is brought to you by myself nizar hassan benjamin red produced behind the scenes by susan wilson and the music is by omar elfeel